Now, I don't write a lot of songs about green stuff, but I write some. So I'm just going to play one. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. See, to me, songwriting fills in gaps. I'm Michael Shoulder, and my guest has somehow turned global warming science into toe-tapping music. You can't write a story about the history of fossil fuels. That would be like, that's a book, right? But I wrote a three-minute song that's about the history of our love affair with fossil fuels. It's called Liberated Carbon. Andrew Revkin is the man behind the influential New York Times blog, Dot Earth. We'll get Revkin's take on global warming, the quest for energy independence, and other existential breaking news. But first, Liberated Carbon. It took a thousand generations for our species to rise, but gathering and hunting was no way to get by. We yearned to burn more than dung and sticks. And someone came along and said, hey, try lighting this. He opened up the ground and showed us coal and oil. Said, come liberate some carbon, it'll make your blood boil. Liberated carbon, it'll spin your wheels. Liberated carbon, it'll nuke your meals. Liberated carbon, it'll turn your night to day. Hey, hey, come on and liberate some carbon, babe. It's the American way. I got peat swamp fossils running my TV. BP's black label burns in my SUV. We can light up the planet like a Christmas tree. They say that things are getting hot, but hey, we've got AC. It's the American way, and the Chinese way, and the Indian way, and the human way. Pump those electrons and that gasoline. No sweat or hurry, just turn on a machine. We sent an army to the desert to keep this country free. Hey, hey, and to liberate some carbon, baby, for you and me. Liberated carbon, it'll spin your wheels. Liberated carbon, it'll nuke your meals. Liberated carbon, it'll turn your night to day. Hey, hey, come on and liberate some carbon, baby. Liberate some carbon, baby. Liberate some carbon, baby. It's a human way. Recorded live with leaders of the Organization of Biological Field Stations, the NASA of the Earth. This is a Wavemaker conversation with Dot Earth's Andrew Revkin. My first long cover article in a magazine on global warming was 1988. So before there was an IPCC, before there was a framework convention on climate change, uh, I did a 
6,000-word piece on the questions that still confront us today. And weirdly, not weirdly, the same people are in that story, except for the, a few who have, died, have passed away, who were, um, are still in any story I would write today on hurricanes, on sea level rise, on the aspects of climate that matter, climate change that matter most to society. How warm is it going to get? You know, which models? What are these models? How do they work? Strain, I mean, the, the, the reality is that the basics were clear then. Uh, they were clear in the 70s. They were clear in the 60s. Uh, greenhouse gases actually work. They, they make the planet warmer than it would otherwise be. Adding more to the atmosphere will warm the climate. But it's these inconvenient details that are still um, hard to understand. How warm is it going to get is about the same level of question now as it was in 1988. And um, how fast are sea levels going to rise, which is having strolled on the waterfront here just this afternoon, I took a panoramic photo showing that essentially uh, it's a moon high tide out there. So that's like the difference between a flood and where a lot of people's these shorefront houses in the city are is about like right here. And, <laughs> You know, seas are going to be rising for centuries to come. That's pretty much built into the system now. But how fast? Like, how fast are they going to rise between now and 2100? Remains highly contested among the science community. Not, it's not like manufactured uncertainty. And now in, in terms of how worried we should be, uh, there was a book, The Weather Makers. I don't know if you ever came across that. Yeah. And that was the first. I wrote the Times book review about it. Oh, so this is interesting. So, so the weather makers actually explain this as clear as I've ever seen it, the positive feedback loop. So, you know, the more carbon dioxide, the more warming there is, the more ice that melts, the less there is to absorb the heat, uh, you know, or, or actually the, more, the less there is to reflect the heat. Yeah. And you really get into this existential feeling like the very survival of Earth is at stake. Do you feel that is the case? No. Planet's going to do fine. This planet has been through unbelievably epic disruptive events of mega centuries of uber volcanism. Um, it almost froze to an ice ball in a previous era. The five extinction spasms that have happened so far have ended up with more biological diversity afterwards than they had before. In other words, nature and the earth are not what we worry about. It's all about, it is actually anthropocentric. We worry, we, the thing to worry about is the impacts on things we care about. I'll give you one example in a minute. And, and, and the sense of responsibility that comes from being the first creature in the history of the planet that changed, is changing the planet on a planet scale and knows it, or at least has, recognizes it in, in an abstract sense. Uh, cyanobacteria, several billion years ago, created what some geologists call the great oxygen catastrophe. This is this sort of proto-plankton that created the oxygen that's in the atmosphere. Now, it killed off virtually every organism that couldn't live in an oxygen atmosphere. So it was a mega extinction. But cyanobacteria weren't sitting there going, oh, well, look what I just did. And since the 50s, scientists have been saying, hey, you know, we're actually, we are changing the system. So that's what's unique about right now. You know, the planet has gone through all this stuff, but there's never been a species that's done that and, and kind of has the capacity to recognize that. And what we haven't demonstrated yet is do we have the capacity to actually take that knowledge and do something with it, or do we just keep growing like uh, bacteria on, on a plate of uh, agar? So that's, that's what's remarkably so, interesting about this moment. Remarkably interesting, but that still gives me enough existential anxiety, knowing the planet will survive, but we yeah. might not. Yeah, yeah. Gives me, and you're a father, right, of, of how many children? Two, two sons. Grown or growing? Uh, one's 24. 
before and working on his own and doing great things in the movie business, and the other one's about to go to college. So, so let's then let's ask Obama's clean power plan. You know, officially announced today, cuts CO2 emissions by 32 percent by the year 2030. You know the details of that plan as well as anybody. Not as well as anybody. It's really okay. complicated. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, what do you see in that plan? that gives you a sense, you use the term Anthropocene, so we are in an age that, right. that is the human-influenced age. What, does anything in this plan give you serious encouragement that we could turn the tide and give our species a better chance of long-term survival? And is there anything you wish were in it that is not? There is something I wish were in it that is not. Um, the things that are in it um, reflect the political and economic realities that any president has to operate within. Um, the same is true for Germany, which gets so much credit for all the solar expansion it's done. The, uh, but when you look carefully at German energy trends, behind the headlines about all that solar panels and stuff, they haven't actually reduced their fossil fuel dependence. In the 15 years, they've been in this big push to renewables. So in both circumstances, in Germany and the United States, what I've learned in writing about these things since the 80s is that to a substantial extent, policy, and this is treaties, laws, initiative regulations, reflect what's possible more than they shape what happens. They reflect what's possible more than they determine what happens. Uh, Jesse Osabel, a really smart energy, climate, sustainability wizard at Rockefeller University has made this point before. He says a lot of policy related to energy is uh, pulling on disconnected levers. There's a lot of motion, there's press releases, and ribbon cuttings, but the underlying trends, the fact that we're still you know, more than 80% reliant on fossil fuels globally, and that Germany, even with its big push on solar and, and wind, is, hasn't really reduced its use of coal, those say to me that, one, don't, don't expect magic. There's no magical, like, aha, new IPCC report is going to propel us to magically decarbonize. They say that energy matters to us more than climate risk still. And you know, I've done what I can with information to try to change that. Other people do, the, do stuff to try to change it. And, and it means we have to get sort of, in a weird sense, comfortable with the realities that, that are there. And some people say, I've been chided by left and right. Rush Limbaugh told me to go kill myself one year on, 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 on his radio show. He suggested that I kill myself. If I care so much about population, which then why don't I just kill myself and save the planet by dying? Uh, so, but I've gotten it from the, the left, too. Uh, Joe Rahm, a liberal climate blogger, compared me to Charlie Sheen once for not, 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 not agreeing with his uh, prescription for climate progress. Um, but, but essentially, I think we have to normalize. Maybe, maybe Rush Limbaugh just wants Charlie Sheen to kill himself. I, I, mean, well, I don't know. There might have been some confusion there. Yeah, it, so, um, you, so when I talk about normalizing our relationship with the climate system, uh, working to cut our emissions and to boost our resilience, it's kind of like we do this with poverty, we do this with national security, we do it with public health. We don't expect the magical, perfect public health. Does anyone in this room think we're going to have perfect public health in five years from now? Uh, or globally? Uh, but we work at it. You find but just ways to pause. To pause. Yeah, yeah, sure. You, to, to pause, you said, you know, what, what is possible shapes what these policies are. And just today in your blog, mm -hmm. you linked to uh, a study from the Yale School of Forestry and the Environment which said that when it comes to reducing CO2 emissions from power plants, there are no red states and blue states. There is a 
a wide acceptance that right. that needs to be done. Are there other areas where there is a wide acceptance that people would agree on this yeah. if it were taken out of the sort of you know, the political rhetoric that we're not doing and should be doing that could move the needle on this issue? Yeah, there, yes. The, uh, Yale has done a lot of work on um, assessing public attitudes on climate and energy. Um, really good group there. They, do the, they ask the same questions year after year. You get a real portrait of what they call it, six Americas. There's roughly, they've, they've delineated there's six kinds of Americans when it comes to climate and energy. They range from alarmed to dismissive. And you know someone, I'm sure everyone in this room knows someone at, in both of those bubbles. Most of us are in that mushy, disengaged part in the middle. You know, where you know, you're really thinking about other stuff most of the time. So when you ask questions about global warming, that's the range you get. When you ask questions about um, energy efficiency, magically, not surprisingly, there's a lot more agreement. The, virtually everybody cares about saving money when it comes to energy. Uh, a lot of uh, conservatives I know really care about energy efficiency as a national security imperative. Why should we keep buying oil from, from uh, you know, marginal parts of the world? energy self-sufficiency. I know lots of libertarians who like solar panels because they can take control of their own energy uh, landscape. They don't, they're not reliant on a utility. And so if you, you can argue to the death with someone like that over global warming, which is not productive in the end, or you can find, say, hey, you know, let's have some policies that foster more sensible use of energy where we're not just plugging things in anymore. So given that broad consensus, come back to Obama's clean power yeah. plan. Are we going to look at that? I mean, they, you know, they say you know, that the, uh, journalism is, uh, we're writing history, the first draft of history right yeah. now, and you're writing it. When you look back at this moment a few years from now, is this going to be something that we say, that this was a very significant development? I would have to say no, in the sense that this is all a journey, and Paris in December, this climate treaty negotiation, we were talking earlier today, um, I was glad to see a, a certain an environmental group has set up a website called The Road Through Paris, which for an environmental climate campaign group was to me a very valuable recognition of what I said a minute ago about normalization. This is a long journey. This is, this is not a um, one president, a one conference, a one climate negotiation thing. And that means there is no moment, I think, uh, that's too easy. Uh, that's, the Clean Air Act in 1970 and the, the adjustments to it in 1990 were over a different kind of pollution, sooty stuff that you could recognize had harms and that you could fix with a filter. But global warming is from these gases, especially carbon dioxide, that are, you can't just fix with a filter. And, and the, you can't like capture it and stiff it, stuff it in the ground at the scale that the climate system would care about um, without spending a lot of money. And by the way, I, I wanted to circle back to the thing that was not in the plan that Obama has talked about off and on, but in kind of a tertiary way. And that George Will once upon a time once said <laughs> matters, which is basic science. Um, we are so underinvested in basic research in the sciences that relate to battery, to energy storage, to a better solar panel, to the aspects of the grid that would need to be there if you want to have a lot of renewable sources that are variable. That, that it's ridiculous. The, I, the last IPCC report, I wrote a piece saying, where is the R&D uh, gap? There's a huge R&D gap. The things that we care about, I'll just give you two examples. I, I've, I've published this graph like five times. We cared about getting into space after Sputnik. Sputnik was a moment, right? Remember, that's like, it's very different. Uh, talk about existential. 
the, you know, beep, beep, beep. And, and that, that made us care a lot about getting into space. Kennedy uh, did this program to the moon. That was about $40 billion a year in basic science spending. And that's separate from like building stuff, rockets. That's not building rockets. That's basic science that created the, the photovoltaics that went into space and that kind of thing. 40 billion. Uh, the Health uh, National Cancer Institute, our research on cancer since the 70s, has, has gotten up to about uh, 40 billion a year in constant dollars. And so that, so to me, there's like this 40 billion a year sort of, that means that's something we care about. And uh, in energy, all of our energy R&D, our basic science and energy R&D is about 3 billion. And that includes research on getting more fossil fuels out of the ground. That's not just better solar panels or even better nuclear power. So it's like we are in a snooze fest, so and that's not in there. So, but in those six Americans, six types of Americans that the Yale yeah. School of Forestry identified, and you're saying basic science is so critical here, and basic science, that doesn't sound like that's on that wheel of, of bipartisan support uh, well, or no, nonpartisan support, or is it? Well, well, George Will, as I said, when the Republican, the new, the first of the new Republican Congress came in, I uh, can't remember how many cycles ago it was, he wrote a column saying, hey, Republicans, don't forget science matters. But it was like a one-column thing. It wasn't like a mission. And I wrote about it at the time, said, whoa, look, see, even George Will cares. Uh, and then it went away. And there was another point when some of these, the Tea Party folks were cutting science budgets left and right. And I wrote a piece on my blog saying, where's George Will? <laughs> you know, if you really cared about this, you would be saying something about it now. So other than the sort of the Tea Party-ish, you know, we don't want to do anything, uh, there's a lot of support for basic science. So now it strikes but, me. But let me just. Yes, but please. the reason it's not in conversations is that the left doesn't like to admit that we don't know everything we need to know to solve this problem. It's been cast as a social, political challenge. It's if you just shut up those deniers, we can solve the global warming problem. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My guest is Andrew Revkin, creator of the New York Times blog, Dot Earth. Back with Andrew Revkin in a moment. With Domino's new piece of the pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <laughs> Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at dominoes.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. So you are somebody who has now invested your professional life in, in a story and in an issue that is not going <laughs> to... Was it a good investment? I don't know. Well, that is not going to be solved overnight. And no. in a sense, I'm not a psychologist. I know some. But, uh, you know, it seems like you have come to accept the fact that there are certain things you, no matter how much you know, cannot control. Yeah. And you're sort of observing. And I have to move it over before we take questions in just about two minutes. You told me a personal story, very calmly, 
that you had your own existential crisis and it came oh, yeah. upon you unexpectedly and it's also about sustainability of life. So tell us what happened to you and what that, how that shaped your perspective. Sure, well, um, I was already kind of in transition mode. I left the staff of the New York Times in 2000, end of 2009, when I, I interviewed a lot of psychologists and sociologists about problems like global warming and realized that a big chunk of that meant you can't solve it with better articles. <laughs> And I went into academia to try to find new ways to pursue these questions. Um, and but then, yeah, so that was 2009, 2010. 2011, I'm running with my, my older son in the woods on a hot day, and one of my eyes started going paisley on me. Now, my right eye was saying the world's normal. My left eye was saying the world's paisley. And I'm like, that's interesting. And I didn't know at the time, but I was getting set up to have a stroke. Uh, one of these sort of younger... I ended up writing a piece in the Times about it. Just, just Google for Revkin stroke NY Times, and you'll, you'll find out a lot more than you, you need to know. But, but, and I came out on top, you know, a, a function. Uh, I learned about the 900,000 strokes in America, many of which result in de devastating uh, loss of capacity and, and cost to society and families and death. And that, did you actually have a stroke? I did, yeah. It started out as a, it was a carotid artery dissection, which is not like clotting or any, you know, atherosclerosis. And it's just like an injury to your artery. Um, about 15,000 a year. And they can be in younger people. So know the signs of stroke, please. And you can look them up easily. So I, um, I, I started writing about that. And I was obviously, I, I did a piece while I was in the hospital. It was, I had the actual stroke in the hospital. I had not the initial symptoms that brought me there were not yet a stroke, but that happened overnight, and that's when I started blogging. I wrote a piece on my blog about sustainability, about personal sustainability, sustaining yourself. You can't really save the planet if you're dead or if you're disabled by a medical condition. And, and it got me uh, thinking a lot of things, you know, slowing down, uh, doing the kinds of things that that kind of signal d does for you. But, but some of us are, you know, for me, an incident like that can cut two directions. It can tell you to slow down or it can say speed up. <laughs> I don't know which, probably in this room, there's probably a mixture of people who would say, oh, I got to speed up, get everything done, uh, or slow down and smell the roses. And uh, so I ended up more in the category of speed up, unfortunately. But I do, I try to take care of myself. But the thing is, you know, it's the same thing as with planetary sustainability. You, you, you need to measure you have to observe, you have to be observant, you have to know what risks are so that if something starts to go weird, you don't sort of uh, just sort of shrug it off. And uh, that's why these field stations are so valuable. They're collecting data the same way over and over again. And it, so if you're not keeping track of your conditions so that you can then recognize something is wrong, then you'll probably end up on the wrong side of that, that uh, distribution of survival. And, and I think, so I think to me there is a lot of resonance across those, those two sagas. Well, since, since, your, since your choice has been in some ways to speed up, I'm going to turn it over to the audience for questions now, uh, for some rapid fire questions. And uh, whatever, you, whatever you're curious about, uh, fire away. Sarah, Sarah Oktai, our, our personal oceanographer. <laughs> Humans, the humans affecting the geological age, and uh, Andy was one of 
first people to coin this term, it's been around 20 or 30 years, of the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene, you know, talking about just geologic time, linking it to humans instead of calling the Holocene or the Jurassic, you know, or Cenozoic or all these different errors. How many people in this room knew that that's what? Okay. So, so, I'm, few. so, Sarah, I am going to repeat your question because the yeah. cameras are rolling for them. But, oh, right. but, but the um, so you, uh, Dr. Sarah Oktai has just asked how many people are aware of this term called the Anthropocene, which is basically a term coined. And I, I didn't realize. Were you the one to coin it, or one of the first? It, well, people in to that use global it? warming book that I wrote in 1992, I there's a line in there. By the way, I posted the whole text of that book online. It's a short book. It's like 20 20,000 word book. And uh, there was a passage in there where I said it, that we're, it appears we're entering a geological age of our own making. Uh, and I proposed at that time calling it the Anthropocene just because I didn't know Greek etymology. Anthropo, and like anthropologist, anthro. And no one, the, the two scientists who, who reviewed the text kind of missed it too. So, but, so that means that Paul Crutzen, a Nobel Prize winner, gets the credit. For, for uh, coining it, along with uh, uh, no Paul Sturman. No longer, no longer. This is, this is on the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm in the Wikipedia entry. It. I'm in the Wikipedia <laughs> entry for Anthropocene as like the, uh, the other guy. What isn't there a movie called The Other Guy? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like The Other Guy. I, I just have to stop on that moment. Yeah. So, so you actually wrote that. Yeah. You hadn't read that anywhere else. Do you remember the moment you thought, you know what? This is a, a special category. Do you remember that moment and what yeah, triggered it? Was it a, I, well, I was just talking about Nat Philbrick, who went to college with me. I, you know, there's a lot of things I remember poorly already, even though I'm only 59. So I'm not going to, I shouldn't <laughs> presume that I remember, I'll remember it. But I, yeah, I have a sense of struggling with that. Should I call it, a, you know, anthracene felt sort of smoother, felt like a, it rolls off the tongue better than other things I was playing around with at the time. But just the fact that you The were geological even, age of our own making, yeah, I just felt, you know, I've been reading, uh, man, I grew up on Rene Dubose, wonderful uh, microbiologist and, and writer, won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and he, he, in the 70s, was writing these books about the human environment as, as being a normal thing. It was, he was kind of cutting against that environmentalist, what was me approach to the environment, well, shame on us, um, and saying you know, there can be human environments, human-shaped environments that, that are beautiful and sustainable and functional and, and rich and diverse. And, and when I was at Brown, just a few dozen miles from here, uh, that caught my attention. And so I think that was like playing in my head and, and just, you know, these trajectories, the fact that we were becoming a planet scale entity that, and I wrote in that book too, that these cyanobacteria had done this before, but we were the first species that seemed to be marginally aware of doing something similar. And it just sort of came organically out of the reporting. So there you go. Other questions? I'm on the Anthropocene Working Group. I'm the only non-scientist. This is this sage group of way too male, way too white group of stratigraphers. These are like geologists. The, the most like dusty corner of geology is the people who study layers of rock. And uh, we're meeting, we've already met once face to face in Berlin a year ago. We're meeting again the, the next year or two will be this formal presentation to the world's, all the geologists of, hey, we should formally say we have entered this geological epoch uh, named for us. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think geologists, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies or read the Lord of the Rings? You remember the Ents, those trees? There's like these trees get together for a meeting and, you know, to think, should we go to war? And, and like, 
and the hobbits were so frustrated. Make up your minds, the geologists are kind of like the answer. Well, it takes time. <laughs> so so I, don't, I think it's going to be, I'm serious, it's going to take time before, before there's any formal designation like that. Are there other questions? Yes. So you would talk about policy and maybe reflecting what's possible. And it seems to me like it's a natural human phenomenon to only look at what you know. And you can only do what you're familiar with and so on. So your second comment about R&D implies that to get past that sticking point of what's possible, you need to be able to provide uh, information about what else is possible, what else is new. And therefore, that then enters the realm we might do something different because it's not possible. Is that fair? So the question is, oh, yeah. is how to get beyond a more limited notion of what's possible by providing more information that could expand our notion of, of this possibilities, yes? Right. Is, is that a, is that a, is that a, right. You know, if you only can see the surface of the ocean, Sarah needs to tell us what's underneath so we can know what yeah. we can do. Well, yeah, we do need more science, and we need more science just to understand the system. I was at the North Pole, we didn't talk about that, in 2003, uh, with scientists camped on the sea ice, dropping instruments to the seabed in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, 14,000 feet below the sea ice that you're floating on, to try to get some basic understanding of what the dynamics are under there. There's many aspects of uh, oceanic circulation that are still kind of guesswork. The new paper by Jim Hansen that came out that got a lot of attention a week or two ago on the, fa the prospect of maybe having a lot more sea level rise uh, is highly speculative, partially because we don't have a lot of data. So yes, you need to have, we need to have more observational data, we need to have better theory, you know, conceptualization of how, to, how this plays out. And on, this, and on the energy innovation side, if you're not pushing the frontiers, as you say, beyond even where we think that you should push, you're never going to find the next new thing. And that, uh, actually, I wrote about this a few years ago in the context of Obama's um, he did some creditable stuff on energy innovation. There are these innovation hubs. But the, they were choosing projects that were already like perceived winners in a way. And that's not the way to do what you're talking about. If, if we're always trying to sort of game the system toward rewarding the things that we think are already going to be the thing that happens, you're just going to have more marginal progress and not uh, big jumps. Have you okay. done a story on what would have been a better innovation hub, one that hasn't really gotten fashionable yet? Oh, they're, all, they're all good, uh, but they've only funded a, a handful of them. There were supposed to be eight or ten, I but think. But is there one thing that if you could control the purse strings, you would say, you know, I would really I love wish, to put the money here. I wish there was only one thing, but this is, uh, as Bill McKibben, uh, who has a different worldview in approaching this than I do, but has a lot of good ideas too. You know, he Bill, said Bill McGiven is, is founder of 350.org. Uh, he wrote the first popular book on global warming in 1989. We've kind of been learning about it in parallel and going in different directions. Uh, he called it, He says this is a silver buckshot thing, not a silver bullet thing. And so, and he's right. And that's both. That's on both ends. Um, that's on the technology side and on the behavioral side. Uh, one thing that I think the environmental movement has failed at is being uh, inclusive enough. Um, this gets a, a, some of the big divides, like oh, if you're absolutely against nuclear power and you're for limiting our impact on climate, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Uh, Germany, remember I said Germany hasn't had any progress on cutting fossil fuels. All that growth in solar in Germany has just made up for the turning off of their nuclear power plants. And so they're kind of digging a deeper hole for themselves. And you know, you could say safer nukes, or. But if you say no nukes, um, that gets complicated in a hurry. So, 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 so inclusion, uh, sort of diversity of approaches to the same 
risk, I think, is an important part of the of path forward. And you know, some of these are really impossible to navigate because my wife and I disagree on, on existing nuclear power plants. Do you keep them running or shut them down? So, and she's an environmental educator and a science teacher, and we just have different kind of feelings about that. Uh, but you have to sort of find ways to be a little more inclusive, I think, going forward. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.